God, I am blessed and thankful for how we're going to spend these next few minutes. I'm thankful for how we've spent the last few minutes singing true things to you, saying, proclaiming audibly great and true things about who you are and what you've done. I marvel that we have that privilege, and I marvel that we can do that together, that we're not just off by ourselves, little islands, but that we are a people gathered and that you are the dwelling, we are your dwelling place this morning. We enjoy that. Two, this morning, Lord, I want to lift up a few specifics. I want to pray for another pastor and his wife. I don't, for, for Matt Beasley and his wife, for their family, and for Ridgecrest. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful for a shared ministry with a church down the road that really, in a lot of ways, we wouldn't be here were it not for their faithfulness in planting a church a mile and a half from them. I'm thankful for the ministry of that church. I'm thankful for how they have encouraged us and fueled us and fed us in so many ways. I'm thankful that we have a shared Lord, a shared empty tomb, a shared spirit, a shared supper, all the things that we have in common. And I'm thankful too for a brother and his family that are serving in a similar ministry here to the elders. I want to pray for Matt Beasley and pray for his family and his, his marriage and his worship first before I ever even consider what he does at Ridgecrest. I pray for worship. I pray that everything he does is fueled by adoration and awe and wonder. And I pray that that first finds purchase in his marriage, that he is a man that puts the gospel on display and how he loves his wife. His kids know what the gospel look like before they ever looks like before they ever hear a sermon from dad. Lord, I pray that you would guard him as I pray that you would guard me and other Christian elders, pastors, preachers in this community, that you would guard us from the cares of the world, the distractions that so easily rob us of joy, awe, wonder, marvel. Pray that you would guard his heart. Keep him from those things and use him for your glory at this church down the road. Also, Lord, we want to pray for little Michael Williams this morning who is sick and his mom has asked us to lift him up. And uh, we pray, pray that you will heal his little body even this morning as we are gathered together. And lastly, Lord, I want to pray for Rick Perry. Let's pray for a, a public official and pray for the daily decisions that he makes every day that impact us in ways we don't even know. Lord, we pray that our God will be his God. And if that you already are his God, that he will walk in step with the Holy Spirit, that he will be fed and fueled by you, that he'll be walking with the people in an accountable way, and that you'll use that worship for your own glory to cultivate and perpetuate an environment of peace so that the gospel can be furthered in our context. Lord, I turn over 1.4 sermons to you this morning for an attentiveness that's beyond us, for a clarity that I know is beyond me, I pray that we'll feast. Thankful for this wonderful word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read a passage to you, and then we're going to climb into Hebrews. I need to read a passage that we've considered last week, just for the sake of context, that we'll be coming back to. You can just listen. It's Psalm 95. If you want to be ready, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 3, because that's where I'm preaching this morning. You're about to understand why this is a little bit complicated, why I'm reading both these passages. But I'm going to read Psalm 95 while you're turning there. 
Psalm 95 is a wonderful psalm. The first two or first two thirds of it is invitation. Oh come, oh come, let's worship and bow down. Let's make a joyful noise. God is so worthy of worship. He's the creator from the, the deepest to the highest, from the wettest to the driest. He created it all, so we worship. That's the first two third. And the last third is a stark and potent warning. Listen to this psalm. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him who, with songs of praise. For the Lord is, is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day in Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now in Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7, part of this is going to sound very familiar. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The title of this message today is Taking Care of Unbelieving Hearts. The context for this passage in Hebrews to bring you back into the Hebrew story, this passage, really this entire book of Hebrews is a sermon that's written by the pastor of the Hebrews church. This little church was likely in Rome. It was likely made up mostly, if not completely, of converted Jews, Christian Jews. We would call them Messianic Jews. And this little church, it appears, this is the second, possibly the third generation when this context is, when this, when this letter is written, that's the context. And they are already in the second and third generation. Maybe their fathers are their father's fathers, actually saw and heard Christ's ministry firsthand before they were dispersed into the diaspora, into the Roman Empire. They may have actually seen Christ resurrected and shared that firsthand account and the firsthand teachings with the second and third generation. But in the second and third generation, they're already on the bubble. They're already considering going back, not to paganism, not to the worship of, you know, the Gentile-type worship in Rome, whatever, the Roman gods or goddesses. 
They're considering going back to Judaism. What I would say really in some ways is sort of a respectable fallback. They're considering falling back to Judaism. That's the context. And this pastor who's not on location with them is writing a sermon to them. That's what this entire book is, is a sermon urging them to stay true. Specifically where we are in chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 14, is what's called homiletical midrash. This is pretty cool. Homiletical midrash. I mentioned that to Scott this morning and asked him if he knew what it was. He said, I had a midrash one time, but I put some medicine on it and it went away. (laughs) Homiletical midrash. Homiletical means teaching and preaching. Midrash actually comes from the root word drash. And that word means to search, to examine, to investigate. What homiletical midrash is, it is ancient Hebrew teaching and preaching that takes Scripture and exposes it phrase by phrase, verse by verse. I'm reading about this homiletical midrash, and I'm going, that's what we do every week. That's preaching 101. And the cool thing is, as we are working through the book of Hebrews, we are keeping in step with their genre, homiletical midrash, exposing a passage of Scripture, in this case, Psalm 95, and then explaining it in verses 12 chapter 3, verse 12, through chapter 4, verse 14. It is a sermon. If you want to know what a sermon ought to look like, you can read this. And then you can see, do we preach? It'll also give you a tool if you're church shopping. If you're wondering, you know, maybe you moved here. Or maybe you're looking to be part of a church home. Or maybe you've been in different contexts. Maybe you're visiting family right now. You want to know what is preaching? This is preaching. Telling little stories and reading some email and showing some, you know, telling some illustrations and some little tear-jerking stories. I know God can use that because he used it in my life for most of my life. That's not nothing. Hear that. That's not nothing. But you want to talk about some potent preaching. Take a passage of scripture and expose it section by section, verse by verse, methodically, slowly, carefully dining on it. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to work our way through verses 7 through 12. And here's the plan. The first sermon, the whole sermon, is verses 7 through 11. And then the point 4 is verse 12. Okay, so what we're going to do, I'm going to unpack the luggage in some ways. If you think about this, I was thinking about this this morning. Some of you just moved into a new home or a new apartment or whatever. You move into that place and everything is a mess. You're in it, but things are in boxes. And you have furniture that's sort of sitting around. It's not necessarily where you want it. But over time, you get things situated. And before long, you've moved in and it's home. That's what we're going to be doing in this passage over the next few weeks. At the end of this morning, things will likely be in boxes. And there'll probably be some furniture that needs adjustment and will find its home in the next few weeks. What I'm going to do in these next few verses is introduce you to the furniture in this new room in Hebrews chapter 3 on into chapter 4. I'm going to introduce you to the furniture, and then we're going to sit in it just for a few minutes. We're going to have some coffee, Coke, pizza, whatever you eat when you're moving. And then we're going to look at chapter, chapter 3, verse 12. We're going to look at the furniture there, make a few applications there, and then we're going to have our supper. All right? There's the finish line. All right, so y'all need to stay with me. 
because you'll need your running shoes on. No, we're not going to move fast. You'll need your work boots on. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to move verse by verse, homiletical midrash, just in keeping in step with the genre of the Hebrews preacher right here. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, the word therefore points us back to the first six verses in chapter 3. We spent a couple of months in the first six verses of chapter 3, but it's been a few months since we've been there. Sort of the gist of the first six verses lands in verse 6. Look at it. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are God's dwelling place if in fact we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And the object of that confidence and the object of that hope is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Absolutely, that's what's been said in the first five, five verses of that section. Consider Jesus. We are God's house if we hold fast to these things. Verse 7 and onward point back to that with the word, therefore. In verses 7 through 12, what, God, what the Hebrews preacher is doing today, what, the, what God is doing through him, he is exhorting a people that by this point you would hope understand what's at stake. What's at stake here is where God is going to dwell and who he's going to dwell with and who's going to participate in the blessings of being with God and all the blessings of salvation that go with that. Hopefully by this point, the Hebrews church has swallowed hard because it's a very sober moment in this, in this sermon. And hopefully we as a church this morning can swallow hard realizing what's at stake in where we are in this passage. The Hebrews preacher is concerned for the Hebrews church that is collectively on the bubble, thinking about going back to respectable Judaism. He's hoping that they would maintain their fidelity in Christ, that they would keep in step with their parents or their parents' parents who moved and walked faithfully unto death and likely were martyred in Rome under Nero or Domitian or whoever the emperor was at that time. A very dangerous place to be a Christian in this context. No doubt about it. You might end up being a torch in Nero's garden, a human torch if you love Jesus. And he's hoping and praying and he's preaching toward this end that this generation would maintain their fidelity in Christ and that they would continue to live fueled by divine promises. And refusal to listen would be very, very, very expensive. Refusal to listen in this context, using Psalm 95 as illustration, refusal to listen and respond in obedience would entail the tragic loss of the promised inheritance. Now, the point of this little section, if you want to just summarize it, the point of this section we're going to be in these next, couple, next few weeks is that it's possible to start well but not end well. It's possible to start well but not end well. The Hebrews church, it's possible them to start well and not end well. It's possible for us as a church. It's possible for you as a family. It's possible for you as a believer to start well, but not end well. Man, that's a sober thought. A sober thought. Now, it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit 
says. Psalm 95 is the section that he's quoting and saying that the Holy Spirit says this. Here's what's cool. Psalm 95 was written probably four or 500 years before Christ. It was written for the post-exilic, the post-exilic church that has been restored, not the church, the people, that's been restored to the temple. Ezra might have been the guy that wrote this psalm. If you think the context, they've been in Babylonian exile. Certain number of the families, certain number of the folks have been able to come back with Nehemiah and Ezra leading them back. Nehemiah rebuilding the wall, Ezra rebuilding the temple. Psalm 95 was written as one of the earliest worship tunes in this newly rebuilt temple. So while it has lots of come, come, enjoy, there's a serious note of sobriety in there too because they've just been in the exile. They've just been living in Babylon. They were ripped from their homes with the rubble of their home and their temple in the background. So it has a very sober note but it was written about 400 to 500 years before Christ. And here the Hebrews preacher says, it's inspired and authored by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit says, it's pointing to this reality that dudes just don't sit around and just make this stuff up. These guys were moved by the Holy Spirit to record and write and say these things. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, listen to this passage. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The psalmist in Psalm 95 was moved by the Holy Spirit to write these words. And then the Hebrews preacher was moved by the Holy Spirit to recast these words. And he says, the Holy Spirit still speaks. Notice the present tense. It says, says. He didn't say the Holy Spirit said to the psalmist in Psalm 95. He said the Holy Spirit says, written 400 to 500 years before the Hebrews preacher quotes it. And then him quoting it here saying says proves that yes, indeed, apparently is, it is in fact a living word. For just the next chapter in Hebrews, it says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It apparently is living and could be written four or 500 years before this guy, and he could say the Holy Spirit says, and I'm going to say it this morning, the Holy Spirit still says. It's just as relevant in 2013 as it was in the first century for the Hebrews church. Man, does that... Does that motivate you to want to eat this? Does that motivate you for some midrash? For some study and some examination? Because this thing is living. When I said, man, that we would hear from the Holy Spirit this morning, that's what I meant. When we expose this, the Holy Spirit still speaks. And he, he speaks a lot throughout the rest of this passage. In Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, this living warning from Psalm 95 is repeated in little sections throughout this passage. In chapter 3, verse 15, in chapter 4, verse 3, in chapter 4, verse 4, in chapter 4, verse 7. You see how important it was for us to eat Psalm 95 last week because this passage is inundated with the warning portion of Psalm 95. Especially appropriate for us to eat it last week and enjoy it again this morning because it is a living warning. It's very appropriate that it begins with the word today because it's just as relevant today as it was in the first century for the Hebrews church as it was for the post-exilic 
people of God in the temple four or five hundred years before Christ. But this next phrase, today if you hear his voice, today is a listening, obedient sort of word. For obedience and listening is most appropriately to be done today. Just check yourself. If you hear something on a Sunday and you think, man, I'm going to get to that eventually, then I would wonder if you even heard it. Because listening and hearing and moving obediently is most appropriately done today. The first sermon that I preached at Cross Point Fellowship almost 10 years ago, that would be July, I preached in view of a call in 2003. I preached from passage in, in Ephesians. Listen to this passage. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The thing I enjoy about this passage is it points to the reality that if you don't step out in obedience today, tomorrow is going to be evil because it's going to be fleeting and it's going to be a whole lot easier to dismiss what you've heard. It's going to be a whole lot easier to dismiss what you've been called to be obedient in. It's a whole lot easier to not hear something tomorrow than it is today when it, hurt, when it hits you. Hearing is appropriately done today. Make the most of your time and hear what God says when he says it, for the days are evil. And he says, don't harden your hearts like your fathers did at Meribah, Massa, and Kadesh. Kadesh is pointing back to the time where they sent the spies over into the promised land, 12 of them. 10 of them came back with a false report. Really, it wasn't a false report. It was just an inflated report of these giants where everybody's walking around like the nation of Israel would be a bunch of crickets compared to all these giants. That's the context where the pronouncement of their faithlessness and the pronouncement of their distrust would be that a generation an entire generation would die in the wilderness. Here's the passage. Here's a little section of it from Numbers chapter 14. Truly as I live and as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who've seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despised me shall see it. The Meribah and Massa reference are references to the people of God grumbling and complaining against Moses. And God and Moses equate that with grumbling and testing God. You grumble and complain against God's leadership, and Moses and God equate that with testing God. That's the context where they grumbled and complained against Moses and tested God where they said, give us water. And they started saying, let's, let's replace these guys and go back to Egypt where we had pots full of meat and plenty of water to drink. And then combine the Meribah and Massa reference with this reference right here in Numbers chapter 14, the, the response to the spies report. And what you find here is you find a people that indeed put him to the test. Here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 9, it says, They put me to the test. And it points back to the verse in front of it. How did they put them to the test? on the day of testing. That's a passive reference to what would be an active reference which is better understood of what's going on in their hearts through their distrust. They put me to the test through their distrust for they always go astray in their heart 
And that numbers reference is a great passage that shows us they've already tested me 10 times. They have not known my ways, so God swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses equates rest with occupying the promised land. That's what he's speaking of here. That's what the psalmist was speaking of in Psalm 95. The Hebrews preacher is talking about an altogether different reference. He's talking about our eternal rest. He's talking about our eternal rest in glory with God. But this passage here in Psalm 95 is pointing to reoccupying the promised land, reoccupying Canaan, and God said, because of their distrust of me, they will not enter my rest. And the death knell rings for a million people. I want you to hear that. Because as you read it, it's easy to miss. That passage tells us there were 600,000 fighting-aged men at that point when they left Egypt. So we can estimate that there may have been a million people that he pronounced judgment on that you will die in the wilderness and you will spend the next 38 years digging sandy graves for a million people because of your distrust. I wonder if the Hebrews church realized the gravity of that. And I wonder if we realize the gravity of it here in 2013. Distrust of God, disbelieving God, active distrust, grumbling and complaining against God resulted in a million graves over the course of 38 years. Only the children 20 years, and un- 20 years and under entered with Joshua and Caleb. Only the children. It adds a whole new meaning to having faith as a little child, doesn't it? When you think about this new and trusting generation that ends up entering Canaan. Here's an obvious picture of God's wrath. And I want you to see it, God's people, because God's wrath, I feel like, is underdeveloped in his church. I wonder if we've developed it enough in this church and we engage it often. It is not the only thing we talk about. Absolutely, we talk about God's love. But if all you ever talk about is God's love and you never talk about God's wrath, then you miss out on a big part of who God is. This is a stark picture of God's wrath. The death nail tolls for a million people. But love is on display in that as well. Because he could have rendered the promise null and void. The promise he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He could have rendered null and void because the people rendered it null and void. But he says, you know what? I'm going to preserve a remnant, and it's going to be those 20 years and younger. And in the same context where I'm putting my wrath on display, where a million graves, sandy graves are dug, a whole new generation, a remnant, is going to enter the promised land. There's my love. There's my wrath. And there's my love. See them together. When you see them together, you're going to have a sweet and potent gospel in view and a better understanding of who our God is. So here's the message for the Hebrews church. The message for the Hebrews church. Psalm 95, if you were paying attention, the first two-thirds of that Psalm 95, there are three things for the Hebrews church. The first thing is the first part of that psalm is very joyful and inviting. Come, oh come, worship and bow down. Kneel before our Lord, our God, our maker. 
He dug the deepest, piled up the highest. He set aside the wettest and organized the driest. He's worthy of worship. Come, I'm inviting you, come worship. Take the joy and celebration of the first seven verses into the warning. As the Hebrews preacher is referring to the warning section of Hebrews chapter, or of, of Psalm 95, the first seven verses would have been implied. The Hebrews church would have heard it, even though we're not. The Hebrews church heard Psalm 95 every single week. It was part of their liturgy. Every single week they heard the entire psalm. That's why he could just take a passage of it and just refer to it. They needed no reference. He didn't have to tell them who said it or where it was. But they would have taken the joy and celebration of the first two-thirds of that psalm into the warning. And I'm going to tell you this morning, people, as I hope the Hebrews church would have heard, is I want you to take the joy and invitation of a God that does invite a God that is absolutely love into this warning. I appreciated a quote I read from a guy named Doug Wilson. He's a guy that I study a lot. He said, the prospect of covenant curses, listen to this, the prospect of covenant curses does not unsettle the elect. The prospect of covenant curses does not unsettle the elect. We who have believed enter that rest and the warnings only serve to establish us. But we must seek to be established in the warnings. And this will not happen so long as we are pretending they are somehow inconsistent with our theology. If you read warnings like this, warnings about not entering his eternal rest, and you walk away with little quippy sayings, once saved, always saved, that's what my Sunday school teacher told me, then you're going to miss a seriously potent warning. I don't get the sense that God is about warning things that can't possibly come true. He's warning the Hebrews church through the Hebrews preacher, you bail on Jesus and God's not dwelling with you anymore. You distrust him. You disbelieve in him. And you're not going to reap the blessings anymore. Duh. Man, if we don't hear these warnings, we're missing out on something very important. That's the first thing I think the Hebrews church needed to hear and it's something that we need to hear as a church. Second thing that the Hebrews church needed to hear was the other exhortations in light of this charge to hear. He says, today if you hear his voice, I'm thinking, man, as I hear his voice in Hebrews chapter 3, as I hopefully hear this passage in Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 12, I want to hear the other exhortations in view. I want to hear the rest of the conversation all in view, knowing that this letter, this sermon likely would have been read in one sitting. It's going to take us, I don't know, years maybe. We could lose sight of all the other exhortations. And we might hear one and not the other. So here's a little snapshot of them. I'm going to share with you just the exhortations that I've, met, that I've noted. There are about five central exhortations in the book of Hebrews. Listen to these. Today, if you hear his voice, Chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Today, if you hear his voice, then keep listening and pay attention. There are things that you're looking at, you could say, well, yeah, that's, that's obvious, but it's not obvious. Chapter 3, verse 1 is the next one. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Today, if you hear his voice, consider 
Jesus. Hold fast to the confidence. Hold fast to boasting in Christ. Here's the next one, chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from a living God. If you hear his voice, then take care. Because some are going to fall away. The next one, chapter 4, verse 1. Today, if you hear his voice, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Here's the next one, chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Here's the next one, chapter 6, verse 1. Today, if you hear his voice, hear all of his voice. Chapter 6, verse 1. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Man, just as a church, since January, we've hit some things that have been growing us up into maturity, I think. Refining things like grace, forgiveness, repentance. Man, I hope we continue in that. The next was in chapter 10. Listen to this, verse 19 through 24. Therefore, brothers, since we've confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, here three let us's. Let us draw near with the true heart full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And here's the third one. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you hear that exhortation? Today, if you hear his voice, did you hear all of it? Did you hear all the conversation? Here's the next one, chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. This book has five or six potent exhortations that you need to hear all together. If you cherry pick or you hear one or the other, then you might land in a place where I don't need to hear that one. I don't need to respond to that one because I didn't hear it. Let me tell you something right now. You're accountable for every bit of it. Today, if you hear his voice... Pay much closer attention. Today, if you hear his voice, consider Jesus. Today, if you hear his voice, take care. Today, if you hear his voice, let us fear. Today, if you hear his voice, let us strive. Today, if you hear his voice, let us mature. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to gather together. Today, if you hear his voice, lay aside every weight and sin and encumbrance that keeps you from running the race with endurance. As I wrote these things, I realized as I'm looking at faces today, some of you will not make the journey. I put it as a question in here, but I, know, I already know the answer. I've been here 10 years. I preached to a lot of faces on Sunday mornings in 10 years. I've walked with a lot of people. I've baptized a lot of people. There are occasions, this happened, this, this, is, this is a very stark example. I walked with a guy for months, wanted to understand Christ, wanted to know what it meant to follow Christ. Walked with a guy for months. He got to the point where he said, I want to ask Christ to be my Savior and Lord. And then after that, he got to the point where he said, I want to be baptized. I said, okay, man, let's do it. And we baptized him 
I never saw him again. Called, emailed, made every effort I could to visit him in person. Never saw him again. Some people won't make the journey. Some people that are hearing this charge today, today if you hear his voice, won't hear us make the journey through the rest of them because you'll bail. I wrote it as a question. Will we all make the journey to hear every exhortation in this one sermon, the sermon of Hebrews, or will some fall in the wilderness? According to our Bibles, some will fall in the wilderness. I'm going to tell you right now, my heart as a pastor, as your pastor, is that it's few. I would hope that we would like break some record and have none. Like some invisible record in heaven. Like not for our glory. <laughs> like for his glory. And that we would have none fall away. Because all would hear. Today, if you hear his voice, all would pay attention. All would consider Jesus. All would take care. All would fear. All would strive. All would mature. All would draw near, hold fast, and stir up. And all would lay aside every weight and sin and run with endurance. The third thing that the Hebrews church needed to hear and the thing that we need to hear is that the Hebrews preacher is drawing a parallel between the Jews in the wilderness and the Christian Jews in Rome. Listen to how beautiful this is. In the wilderness of Rome. If you could end up as a human torch in Nero's garden... I'm going to call that a wilderness. If you could end up losing your job because you followed Christ, I'm going to call that a wilderness. If you could end up your entire family bailing on you, I'm going to call that a wilderness. If you could not only die at the hands of Rome, you could die at the hands of Jews. You know that believing converted Jews faced more persecution from the Jews than they did from Rome? Who crucified Jesus? Whose idea was it? I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to call that a wilderness. And the Hebrews preacher is saying, yes, you're in the wilderness. I'm not going to deny you're in the wilderness. You're in the wilderness. But he's drawing the parallel. Those guys that were in the wilderness, watch them. For the sins of the ancient Jews were the same sins of the first century Jews. Distrust. The same sins. The same sins the first century Jews were capable of committing. And you know what? Here, here's what we got to hear, people. They're the same sins that we're capable of committing. But here's the difference. The consequences for the Hebrews church, let's, go, let's back it up. The consequences for the nation of Israel, if they didn't believe God, is they didn't get to drink from cisterns they didn't dig. They didn't get to live in houses they didn't build. They didn't get to walk the land that Abraham and Isaac walked. I mean, that'd be a bad deal. But I think I would take that over the consequences for the Hebrews church and the consequences for us. If, if they bailed on Moses, they might not go into the promised land. If we bail on Christ, what we're talking about here is our eternal inheritance. You see the difference? We're talking about not moving into Abraham and Isaac's land. What we're talking about here is not moving into glory not moving into our internal inheritance. And the consequences for us not listening are much more grave. 
I wonder if the Hebrews church heard it. We don't have Hebrews part two. I wish we did. But I wonder if we hear it this morning. How grave. Now, point four. You made it through one. Mm, good job. By regroup, shake it out. Okay, point four. Okay, I'm okay. Y'all okay? I'm okay. I think I can do this. Point four is important. Let's look at verse 12. Let me get back in Hebrews chapter three. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Three things we're gonna look at here. The unbelieving heart falling away and why the reference to him being living. First of all, the unbelieving heart. What's cool in verses 12 through 19 is verse 12 and verse 19 have sort of bookends for this whole passage being one thought. The bookends are sort of hidden in here because they show up in the Greek. The word there, take care, is actually a word that means see to it. It's a, it's a close relative of a word that's used there in verse 19, so we see. And then unbelief is the other word that's used there. See to it that you guys don't fall due to unbelief. So we see they fell due to unbelief. It's like bookends on this section. Well, we're just going to look at verse 12. The unbelieving heart. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you. An unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. There's a play on words here in the Greek. The, 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 the Hebrews preacher does all kind of things in the Greek that we miss out on because we don't really study it. But here's the play on words. Apistios into apostanos. I almost wonder if he's wanting to use phrases like that so they would remember. Apistios into apostanos means leading you, an unbelieving heart leading you to apostasy. Unbelief leading you to apostasy. Apistios into apostanos. I, I wonder if he wanted them to get that in their head so much so they're going, man, I don't want an unbelieving heart because it's going to lead me to apostasy. I don't want an unbelieving heart because it's going to lead me to apostasy. Over and over and over again. Apistios into apostanos. Remember back in verse 9, in their mistrust of me. That describes an attitude that is just the opposite of radical faith. You want to understand what the unbelieving heart is? It's the opposite of radical faith. While faith trusts in the promises of God in spite of appearances. I'm a hundred-year-old man. My wife is a hundred-year-old hottie, but you say we're going to have a kid. I'm going to believe you. This land is for us. We show up there, and it's like driving up in front of somebody's house, and somebody says, okay, this is your house, but you see a car parked in the driveway, and you see a family sitting around a dinner table. But God says, that's yours. You say, okay, I'm going to believe you. And then I'm also going to live for something that I haven't even seen, a city to come. Man, Abraham did it. The whole chapter 11 is full of example after example of radical faith that trusts the promises of God in spite of appearances. Contrast that with unbelieving heart that responds with distrust, doubt that demands proof, and certainty before it will entrust itself to the promise of God. If I don't see proof, I ain't believing it. Show me. What's the show me state? Arkansas? Oklahoma? 
Missouri, yeah. Mm. Any of y'all from Missouri? The faithless state. You know I'm joking. If you're really from Missouri, don't get mad at me. Show me. Man, unbelieving heart says, show me. Man, prove it. Unbelieving heart, you got to see the money. Show me the money. And the heart behind that is the natural heart, folks. You need to realize that's not just exclusive to Missouri. That is the natural heart. That is our heart apart from the work of Christ in our lives. Listen to this passage. I don't know if there's a book in our Bible that does a better job of developing the problem of the heart than the book of Jeremiah. So I'm going to read these passages, and I'm going to mention their address as I go. You're not going to be able to move fast enough, so just write down their address. Listen to this. Okay, Jeremiah context is exile, leading up into the exile. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it. This is, we're talking about restoration. To the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Here's the next passage. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 24. They did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their own evil hearts and went backward, not forward. Man, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, read, I'm gonna read the rest of them, but I'm gonna just tell you right now, it's not a good idea to follow your heart. Your heart, it gets you in a mess, boy. I'm gonna tell you right now, you're gonna be in all sorts of mess if you follow your heart. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Here's another one. It's inundated in this book. You've done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will. That passes there in the Hebrew is heart, refusing to listen to me. And here's the last one. I told you I'd give you the addresses. This is a long one. Jeremiah chapter 18. I like the imagery of this because it's connected to Romans 9. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his will. He's making some pots and stuff. It's cool. So Jeremiah, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. You can envision him. He wanted to put a handle on it, and the handle broke off or something. So he just takes the whole thing and just melts it all back together, puts it on the wheel, and says, I'm going to turn that into a pitcher. I don't need a coffee mug. I'm going to turn it into a pitcher. And why can I do that? Because I'm the potter. It's my pot, my clay, my wheel. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, the house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Can I do what I want with the clay? Seeing as how I'm the potter. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a, no, a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. God can do that because he's the potter. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster. Remember, this is pre-exile, pre-Babylonian exile. 
I'm shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one of you from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, here's what they say to that, that warning. They say, that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Man, I don't want to listen to your heart either. I don't want you to listen to my heart either. Man, the heart is deceitful, wicked. And who can know it? An evil, unbelieving heart is our default setting. So please don't trust and follow your heart. If you want to do anything, do what this passage implied. Incline your ear instead. You want to talk body parts to commit to God? Incline your ear instead and let your ear, what you're hearing from God's word, inform and direct and conform and transform that evil sucker in there, right there. Because that's the only way it's going to happen, through your ear hole. Man. The natural heart is an unbelieving heart. And it will lead you into all sorts of activity. It's interesting that it uses the word leading you. Like the natural heart actually is active. It's like a leader. Come here, follow me. It gets you into all kind of messes. All kind of things. Falling away. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. I want you to see this passage. Turn to Luke 8. We're getting close to the end. Y'all have done very, very good, very well. Strong. We're going to land well, though. Luke chapter 8. Talking about falling away. As you turn in there, I'll tell you, this, this word falling away or turning away is sort of the opposite of what we considered as a church in the first eight weeks in Solomon's prayer. That the repentant who turns again and acknowledges his name and prays and pleads, this is the opposite of the repentant. The one who hasn't turned toward God but has turned away and has fallen away. And this was predicted long ago. Man, you want to study something as a family? Maybe you got a little row of kids, and you're like, man, what can we study together as a family? How about some parables? This would be a good one. I mean, you could actually go out and plant some seeds in the yard, dig some little holes. Kids, kids could be learning some stuff. It's good. Luke chapter 8, listen to this. A sower went out to sow his seed, verse 4, 5. And he sowed, and some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock as it grew up. It withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and it choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. He who has ears, let him hear. He explains it a few verses down. They're asking him, what in the world did that mean, Jesus? He says, okay. The parable is this, verse 11. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. I don't know what soil this guy was. I'm telling you about this obvious, I mean, extreme case 
of pouring yourself into somebody and then they get wet, they dry off, and you never see them again. I wish that was the only time that happened to me in 10 years. I wish that was the only time that happened to us as a church in 10 years. We've all experienced our version of it. Satan comes, grabs a seed, picks it up off the ground. Here's the next one. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of testing, there's the words, they fall away. It shouldn't confound us and it shouldn't confuse us and it shouldn't surprise us when it happens. It breaks our hearts, right? Those of you who experienced it, you're like, man, because you're hopeful. I'm hopeful, as I said before, I'm hopeful that every single one of us makes the, goes the distance through the rest of these exhortations. But I realize, sure as I'm standing here, that likely this seed is going to fall on some ground that Satan's going to come pick up off the heart. Or this seed's going to fall on some ground that's rocky and shallow. And when some sort of test comes along, that test, man, you're going to be like, hey, some people, it's funny, think about faith like it's a vitamin. Imagine this, if you, if you were going to take a vitamin, and you're like, man, I've been feeling bad, you know, so I'm going to go get some multivitamins. So you get up one morning, and you know, they take, take it with food. So you have a good breakfast, you know, you take you a vitamin, and like a few minutes later, you're like, I don't feel any better. The next day, you know, I don't feel any better. And faith is like a long, long, drain, long draw. I mean, it, it's not like a vitamin that you just go pop in your mouth and bam. You're going to be tested. And some are going to, when they're tested, they're going to fall away. It's a given. It's the nature of the kingdom. In the next verse, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those that hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. They die too. Three quarters of the kinds of soil that are mentioned, the seed hits the earth and doesn't bear fruit or doesn't go the distance. They start well, but they don't end well. It's the nature of the kingdom. Y'all get that? I want you to hear that. You got to hear that. It's the nature of the kingdom. Many, in fact, will hear the words, I never knew you. Does that cause anybody in here to tremble? Seriously. Does that cause anybody, to, anybody here to go, man, I want to finish well. I don't want to be one of those that start well and then hear the words, I never knew you. I don't want to be one of those that heals in Jesus' name and Take up your mat and walk and, you know, feeds the poor and the hungry and preaches, shepherds a family, teaches, and then bails on Jesus at some point and doesn't finish well. Because I'll prove to be one of those earlier soils. And I'll just prove that that's the way the kingdom works. Man, it should cause us all to swallow hard. I asked earlier, will everyone go the distance according to this passage? No, some won't make the journey through the exhortations of Hebrews. Some won't. It'll be the cares of the world. It will be a test. Or it'll just be pure old Satan. Just come taking a heart, the, the seed from the heart, and not finding any purchase. And likely that will actually be, over the course of our journeys together, it will likely be many. It'll likely be many that hear the words, I never knew you. Many will start well, but not end well. And it's possible for any of us.
Do you hear that from me? I want you to know that your preacher this morning, your pastor, is not sitting here thinking, it ain't going to be me. That's what I said last week. And that causes a lot of trouble for folks to hear that from your pastor. Man, if you're not absolutely sure and secure and everything's good where you can just sit back on flowery beds of ease, can anybody? No, that's the point of the passage. That's the point of our word. That's why warnings are here because we grow distrusting. We grow more confident about what we have in our mind and in our heart than what this book says. We think our ways are better than his ways. That's where we gravitate, every single one of us. That's why we all need to be stirred up by way of reminder. That's why we all need to have renewed minds week by week by week by week. This could happen to any one of us. Do you realize that? Any of us could start well and not end well. And falling away from the living God, man, I told you it's a respectable fallback to fall back to Judaism, but you need to hear what he's saying there. He's talking to a bunch of Jews. If you go back, Christian Jews, if you go back to Judaism, you are falling away from the living God. Go tell a current believing Jew that right now and see if they don't slap you up inside your head. That's what he's saying right here. And it says it also in 2 John, verse 9. Listen, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ... He could be writing these words of the Hebrew church. He, who doesn't abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both father and son. You bail on Jesus, you've bailed on God. Do you hear how important that is? How grave that is? And I told you I was gonna mention this language of the living God, why that choice of words, living God? Here's the only other place that it's referred to in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 31. Listen to this passage. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The term living God, when you see that, you need to pay special attention because it is a grave and important, potent passage. And it's a reference to his ability as the potter to just take the clay and go, I'm starting over. And he can do it. He's the living potter. If you want to incorporate those passages. He is the living God. Now, last thing I want you all to consider is in this phrase, Hebrews, this passage, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12, the word brothers. I like to study old dead guys, primarily, not exclusively. But John Owen is a guy that I read some. He's a Puritan pastor, was a Puritan pastor. And he pointed out the beauty of this word brothers. I was thinking about how frustrating it might be for the Hebrews preacher to think, I'm not there with my church for a few weeks or months, and they're considering going back to Judaism. How frustrating that might be for him, but yet he has a term for them that's an endearing and sweet term, the word brothers. And this was a quote from him that I appreciated. It's an encouragement to me. I read it to Scott this morning. Scott said, I needed to hear that. I need to paste it on the inside of my eyelids. A minister must be meek, patient, 
not easily provoked, not quick-tempered with any of his flock. Tenderness, gentleness, and acts of love and care toward people we speak with secretly softens them and opens their ears and hearts to let in a word of instruction and exhortation. I read that passage and I appreciated John Owen. I appreciated the gentleness of the Hebrews preacher and I pined to be that pastor and minister with this people and I pined for the shepherds and these families to reflect this sort of character as well. Meekness, patience, gentleness that will secretly soften your families and that will secretly soften this church to a word of instruction and exhortation. And I'm going to tell you right now, probably the most profound thing in this passage that struck me, especially going into next Sunday, is where he says, Brothers, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Brothers, I'm speaking to you collectively as the church about individual possibilities. Brothers, I'm speaking to you as a people about what any of you, and me included, are capable of. I'm speaking to you as a church to take care, people, corporately, that none of you has an unbelieving heart. There's a corporate address for individual walks. Man, I'm going to tell you right now, that is so not Western. And I don't mean cowboy Western. I I mean, that is so un-American. There's a corporate responsibility, a church-wide responsibility for individual walks. I mentioned it last week, this, this thing that has become real prominent in our faith, the inward spiritual life, the me and God sort of thing. I wrote an email that I didn't send out this week. I want to re, and I'll just tell you, I want to reinforce that is a very real thing. When the Holy Spirit moved into the church, he moved into you. There is a very real inward spiritual journey. But let me tell you something. That inward spiritual journey is not a legitimate journey if it does not have outward application and expression. I don't know what it is. Beans? Bad beans? Make you feel funny on the inside? I don't know. It's not a legitimate journey unless it involves an application with people with bad breath, people that will disappoint, people that will let you down, people that will strike a rock twice when they're supposed to just speak to it. People that will offend you when they're trying to love you. People that will will ignore you. People that will forget about you when they should remember you. Man, I'm going to tell you what, you walk with regular people and that is going to happen. If this thing in here is real, it's going to have an outward expression and application. And if there's no outward expression and application, then what takes place in here is not real. And I'm going to tell you right now, it is a corporate responsibility to be involved in our individual walk. This thing, this inward spirituality thing that's taking on such a prominent role, I fear is at times at the expense of the corporate responsibility. Church who? Elders who? 
shepherds who, me and Jesus got it going on right here. Man, I'm telling you, that is, that is not in our Bibles. I don't know where that comes from. Bad preaching, bad music, people running their mouth off without reading this. I'm going to tell you what, people of God, if you have some sort of notion of some inward spiritual thing, but you don't have a notion of how that's going to play out with people with bad breath, people that disappoint, people that are rude, people that are forgetful, people that strike a rag twice, then you have missed it. That's Gnostic. That's Gnostic. That's this spiritual thing that's separate from the physical thing. And that's a Gnostic application of the gospel. And I'm going to tell you, in the faith, and you've missed it. And we have a responsibility corporately to be involved in the individual walk. Whether it's un-American or not, it's biblical. And if there are only five of us that are going to do it, I'm with the five. Because you know what? I need it. I need to know that if I'm on the bubble, I need to know that if I go into tractor supply and if I see young, some filly working behind the counter, you know, I'm getting some dog food. I see some beautiful filly working behind the counter and I'm like, mm, she's beautiful. And if I run off with her and leave my family, I need to know that this church will lift me up by name. I give you permission. In fact, I beg you to because my eternal destiny is at stake. If I bail on the faith, please lift me up. I need you just as much as you need me. This is the only application. The next verse goes on. Exhort one another. We have a corporate responsibility to be involved in the individual journey. Here are two other examples. See to it, people, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it, church. We have a corporate responsibility to be involved in the individual root of bitterness. It is our call because there's too much at stake not to be involved. Man, the next one. See to it, people, body, brothers, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Corporate, see to it, that no one is unholy, sexually immoral, unspiritual like Esau. Corporate responsibility in the individual lives. That is what church is. That is the church I want to be a part of. That is the church that I am telling you year after year, if we don't change, if that's who we continue to be, that's who I, where I want to be right there. Membership renewal, that means something to me because I want to recommit my, my availability to you, my vulnerability to you. I need you in my life because without you, I might follow this. Without you, I might follow this and I could land anywhere working in tractor supply by my new bride. Man, I'm serious. I'm not joking about that. Man, I need y'all, and y'all need me, and we need each other. That's You see why I had to have the point four? Because we're going into next Sunday in membership renewal. 
And membership matters. Every year we do this, it becomes more and more potent, more and more important, where we realize, how can we function without this? I'm vulnerable without this. I'm out there. I can land anywhere. But with brothers and sisters by my side and with me by your side, man, we can stay in the faith. And we need that. That's what church is, people. If there are five of us, let's do it. <laughs> There's too much at stake. We're not talking about club membership. And we're not talking about whether we're going to inherit a physical land for a while. We are talking about eternal outcomes. Eternity. If there are five of us, let's do that next week. Let's purpose to do it now as we take the supper. There are however many of us that are here this morning. I pray that we understand the gravity of what's at stake. I'll share a passage with you as we lead into our supper. It's from the book of Exodus, especially appropriate considering Psalm 95 reference. Considering the fact that many of the people that ate this meal, the Passover meal, did not inherit the promise. That it could add a note of sobriety to us, for us, as we take the meal. We can have this heart within us, corporately and individually. Lord, guard my wandering heart. Lord, incline my ear to your truth so that this heart will be renewed. Lord, put beside me men that have the lead in their pencil to come alongside me and tell me when I'm going down the wrong track, to tell me when I have blind spots. Lord, please surround us with that because there's too much at stake. Can we have that sobriety as we take that meal together, this meal? This was a very sober night. It was a Passover night. It was the last of the plagues. When Jesus sat with his disciples at the Lord's Supper, and he said, do this in remembrance of me, he wasn't saying do and eat, eat food in remembrance of me. He wouldn't say do some new thing tonight in remembrance of me. They were having the Passover meal. And he's saying, take this Passover meal that y'all been taking as the Jewish people for 1,500 years, but now take it instead of thinking about a little unblemished lamb walking around. Take it thinking about me. Because what y'all did to that lamb, the, the uh, Romans are going to do to me tomorrow. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a clear connection between this Passover night and how we should take the supper. There's a sobriety to it. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great 
cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In one setting here, you see wrath and love. See them together. Enjoy them together. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentils of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its entrails. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning shall be burned. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are and where I see the blood I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That Passover meal was, I suspect, sober as they heard judgment in their ears. You're hearing your Egyptian neighbors screaming in the middle of the night. Shrieks as they find the firstborn, even of their puppies, dead judgment in your ears I bet that Passover meal was sober but I bet it was delicious too and even the description of it doesn't sound good bitter herbs, guts on the inside leave it all, you gotta eat every bit of it except for the guts it doesn't sound very tasty but given the context it's delicious right? delicious, like the best lamb I've ever had because the destroyer, you hear his wings and wind outside. Shrieks, shrieks, shrieks. You're like, it's the best lamb I ever had. The gravity of that night has got to inform the gravity of this meal. It's just a little piece of bread, but it's delicious. It's delicious. Knowing that there's judgment in the background knowing that we're eating a meal of life and deliverance with God. And also realizing that our forefathers, if we're a new Israel, our four, four, forefathers weren't faithful. There's a sober note to it, an additional sober note. Lord, bind my wandering heart to thee. Lord, may your grace like a fetter tie me up. Bind me to you and bind me to your people because there's too much at stake.
do this in remembrance of me. About these, this covenant faithfulness of the Hebrews church, I hope that it doesn't come across like you have got to be in perfect form because I haven't seen it from any of you and I haven't, certainly haven't seen it in my own life. Brad preached a sermon a while back, the Foremost of Sinners sermon, one that comes to mind often because I feel like the Foremost of, sermons, foremost of Sinners. There are Sundays where I'm surprised anybody came back. Seriously. I'm not joking. Seeing some of y'all back this Sunday after last Sunday, where I, I read that Owen quote, and I'm like, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me, but I want to be me. I was surprised to see some of y'all back this Sunday. But I'm thankful that this salvation thing will never be by our own merit or performance. If it was, then we might as well all go home and just go watch football or pick up a new hobby or something on Sundays. If you ever hear that in a message where you think, man, I got to be in perfect form or I'm not in the faith, man, faith, at least what it looks like to me, you look at it like the heroes, Abraham sloppy but you know what else it is it's relentless it doesn't quit it might start well but it might not but it's going to end well that's what I want to me it ends well because there are going to be some sloppy steps in there you're going to have them I'm going to have them we'll have them together and we help each other up because two are better than one when one falls down there's someone there to help them up as we take the supper each week, we're enjoying of ultimate fidelity, an ultimate faithfulness by the one who accomplished this work for us so that we can walk freely as free former death row inmates, marveling, talking about the one who took our voltage for us. Man, we can enjoy this meal together. Let's enjoy a work of righteousness that's completely outside of ourselves. And let's pray, Lord, by your grace and your mercy, bind me to that work. Bind me to that worker, capital W. Foster in us an affection for him that never dies till our last breath. Let's take and eat. And let's take and drink. Lord, I pray for this sort of fidelity. And as I pray it, I know that it's not something that we can muster on our own. It's something that you have to work in us. And Lord, I pray that we will be striving, that we'll be paying much closer attention, that we'll be working within a work that you're working in and on us. I pray that you'll find us vigilant, attentive, sober, belt-fastened, feet shod lamb chop in hand I pray that you'll find us a sober people equipping our children for a returning Lord I pray that you'll find us an out loud people sharing with those we work with or live by or bump into who don't know you of what's coming Lord, we beg this of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.